if you got a group of people that are happy, content, satisfied in their role, and they're fighting the same fight to cross that goal line and achieve the general availability data in the product or the revenue number or the whatever it may be that they're accountable for, you're going to find that you've got a good organization if you're meeting your objectives across every functional unit. And indeed, we have. In fact, we've exceeded it. So another part of measuring that is this retention. So being able to go back and acknowledge the work, right? Don't forget to say thank you. Don't forget to say thank you to every single individual in the company and also to every customer that you have. Take that time out. Make sure you appreciate all that you have been able to do because of the people that support you and the customers that pay you. Welcome back to the latest installment of Founder Vision. I am your host, Brian Gupton with Clearview. And today I am joined by Patricia Hume, CEO of Canvas GFX. How are you doing today? I'm great, Brian. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. So before we get started, maybe can you tell us a little bit about what Canvas GFX does and maybe a little bit about your background and career progression before becoming the CEO of of Canvas? Sure, sure. Great. Thank you. Let me start with a little bit of my career background and then we'll jump into Canvas because it sort of feeds how I got here. Okay. I've actually been in the software technology industry for four decades now. I started my career as a youngster at IBM and I was quite fortunate to spend 18 great years at IBM being afforded an opportunity to learn everything I needed to know about running a business. So I had an opportunity to work across different functional units, which certainly gave me an opportunity to understand probably what I was good at. Yeah. So between finance and engineering and sales and marketing, that experience was just terrific. I moved around after IBM. I had an opportunity to go to Avaya Telecommunications. There, I ran their small, medium enterprise business globally. From Avaya, I went to Vertical Net Markets as CEO. So that was my first public company chief executive officer role. There was a lot going on in those days. I left and went to SAP, the very large enterprise requirements planning software company in Waldorf, Germany. There, I ran their small, medium enterprise channel sales and marketing, left there to go into a microcap. So decided to kind of go down to a little bit smaller company. I went to a company called Convio in Austin, Texas. I was brought in to help grow revenue. Indeed, we did. And the company was acquired, which was their exit strategy. From there, I went to very small startup. I went to a seed startup business called Trapit with my now venture partner, Gary Griffiths. We raised Series B and were recruited in to run a public company called iPass. He was CEO. I was chief operating officer. The board asked us to get the company to a position for acquisition. Indeed, we did. And so in February of 2019, Gary and I started Wisdom LLP, which is a boutique venture capital company. And then now this leads us to Canvas. 
So in 2019, the company Canvas GFX came to us as venture capitalists. They were looking for funding. We did our due diligence and realized that indeed Canvas was a sleeping giant with tremendous opportunity for growth and disruption in the technology market. So that's that's me. That's a lot. I said a lot, but four decades. I summarized it in a few four minutes, a minute a decade. But anyway, let me tell you a bit about Canvas. So Canvas GFX is a company that is addressing a real problem in the manufacturing vertical. So if you think about the manufacturing vertical, it has nine sub-verticals. So it's a huge market opportunity. What do we do? We deal with something we're calling product communication disorder. All right. Big word. What does that really mean? You think about today how manufacturing companies design, develop, and manufacture that which they're building. They're using a lot of advanced technologies, finally. It's a slower segment to adopt technology, so digital transformation has taken a little bit longer in the manufacturing sector than perhaps in other sectors. But along the road to digital transformation, the area that was kind of left untapped was the area associated with documenting creating communication around that which the company is building. And if you look at the manner in which manufacturers create all sorts of documentation today, everything from manufacturing work instructions to RFPs to sales presentations to marketing presentations to fix and repair, it's a cumbersome workflow. It's inefficient. Yeah. And it's costing companies money, and it's kind of a silent killer in a certain way. So the attainment of critical KPIs are actually slowed down a bit because of the inefficiency, the chaos, and the disorder that we see in manufacturers around product communication. Right. Now, I think you were telling me before, so Canvas GFX, you you guys were specialists um, in 3D CAD modeling product documentation. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. And the company had been around for like 30, 40 years, you had mentioned, but you know, the business model had been you buy a, a desktop application you know, once and you have a perpetual uh, license. Is, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So indeed, Canvas has been in market for three decades. The premise 30 years ago was, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do business graphics, drawing and design on a computer? And we know that's a long time ago because we know the power of what we have in our hands today. Through that journey, Canvas realized that adding technical documentation along with creative documentation would start to resolve this communication disorder. Yeah. And so over that period of time before we got engaged, they were selling a perpetual license to your comment, absolutely correct, to lots of large manufacturers. When we stepped in, we said, okay, that's interesting. The intellectual property is indeed extremely powerful. The geometric algorithms that the team has built are certainly, I would say, best of breed state of art, not in a 
sort of self-serving way, but when I look at the competition, we really do do what we say we're going to do with excellence, yeah? So one of the biggest challenges we had, Brian, was going back to that customer base and saying, okay, guys, you know, thank you so much for your business and for your loyalty over three decades. But now what we want to do is we want to move you from a perpetual license model to a subscription model, meaning you may have bought the product for X dollars in 2018, yeah, and you own that license, but now it's 2021, and if you want to get the latest version of our product, we'd love to sell it to you, but you have to pay for it year over year over year. Right, right. Which, you know, I think that's like an interesting sales approach because like you sort of have to overcome the initial pushback of, you know, oh, okay, I can see why that benefits Canvas, but why does that benefit me, right? And so you have to kind of sell them on why this, you know, this, you know, web-enabled model where you're able to, to deliver, you know, updates daily or weekly or however often you guys push, why that benefits, you know, them as someone who's owned a, a perpetual license. Like so, so when you joined the company, had they already made the transition to that? you know, SaaS product model, or were you, you joined and then you led that transition? Yeah. So the answer is when I joined, they were still selling on a perpetual license basis. It was funny because there were a lot of naysayers. A lot of people said, oh, you're never, ever going to be able to convert these large enterprises into a subscription model. They won't do it. And I, I smiled because I think when people say you can't do it, it forces me to work that much harder to prove that we can do it. Yeah. Right. So we exited 2019 with a couple hundred thousand dollars of what we would call recurring revenue or SaaS revenue. Yeah. Now the numbers were bigger than that because we sold perpetual prior to my joining the company. The growth rates that we have seen from 2019 to 2021 are amazing. Yeah. So, so how did we do it? We went back into the customers and, you know, Brian, we had a lot of help and I'll tell you where we got the help. The market helped us because the market started to move into subscription models and cloud and whatnot, you know, with salesforce.com and, you know, we see it with Microsoft office 365. I mean, so the giants led the way right? They led the way. They started to train the market on a new behavior, which was you rent the software if you would, right? And you pay for it yearly. Yeah. And with that comes more regular updates, support, right? And so that helped us. So one of the things we did when we went back into the customer base is we first question you ask is, do you have any subscription software today? They say, "Hmm, yeah, we do. And then you say, oh, so you're familiar with the model. Oh, yes, we are. And then we say, okay, guys, it's our turn to move into the 21st century price methodology and offer our product in the same way as the rest of the market is behaving. So we did it. And knock wood, we've been really quite successful. And I think it's indicative of the quality of the product. Yeah. Of course, the sales team is terrific, but I think that, you know, I don't care how good your sales team is. If your customer doesn't love what you've done and built, 
they're not going to buy it. So I I really think it's a testimony to the engineering organization here that they've built a beautiful product that really does what we say it will do for these enterprises. So how how did you overcome the, I, I guess, like, I can foresee like some of the initial pushback with these types of companies, these 3D CAD models, these are, you know, they're intellectual property. Often it's, you know, products that they are bringing to market, right? So they're very security minded and and try to be conscious of, you know, not letting their ideas uh, seep out, you know, especially to to competitors. And, And I, you know, it's always been my feeling that people are a little bit overly cautious when it comes to those things, because in reality, it's, you know, somebody is trying to actively steal your intellectual property, whether, you know, you're dealing with web enabled apps or, or not, you know, they can find a way. Right. So, but, but how, how is your, you know, like, how have you approached that when speaking with, with clients who have those concerns? Yeah, it's a very good question. So we were cognizant that, Many companies do, as you rightly stated, treat their 3D metadata as, you know, highly proprietary IP, right? And that concern is real, especially in the larger manufacturers. I think the new economy companies, new space economy, the new create economy, because they're small and growing, they are less sensitive to what we see in the larger enterprises. But the way we addressed it is we listened to what the market told us, right? So when our customers said, we have to make sure that that data set is secure and we need to ensure that when we're sharing documentation that will be consumed on a browser, that the metadata is not present in that experience. So what we did is, of course, we're an Amazon customer. There's a plug for Amazon. So we use both the regular Amazon cloud and we use Amazon.gov, where the security is tighter in Amazon.gov. They built it specifically based on requirements from the Department of Defense, as an example. And so our product can run in either Amazon regular cloud or in Gov. That's number one. Number two, we are... Um, understand and have gone through the process of SOC 2 Type 2 compliance. So that requirement is something that we had to embrace, as do most SaaS businesses that are touching, you know, sensitive customer data. Yeah. And then thirdly, we put in parameters in the code whereby if you're sharing a document and you do not want any of the 3D metadata to be present, right, the user has the capability to select exactly what the consumer of the data, you know, the guy that's going to look at the gal that's going to look at the data, what they're allowed to see, right? So at a minimum, they see the 3D model rendering, yeah? So it's alive and it's interactive and it's wicked cool, yeah? And then all the documentation that goes with it. So think if I'm looking at how do I fix the airplane engine, yeah? You can see the engine, you can tear the engine apart, and then you see the instructions, which is what we do inside Canvas GFX. So we have taken the the concern about proprietary data very, very seriously as a small startup, yeah? Right. So obviously Canvas has sort of faced this classic innovator's dilemma challenge (laughs) that most companies don't get through so if you're for other CEOs out there who 
are, you know, running legacy companies that are kind of looking at, you know, this innovator's dilemma with for their own, you know, company? What what is some advice or some of the the challenges when you join Canvas that you had to overcome both internally and externally? Because I, I imagine there is as much internal resistance, you know, depending on the type of, of team or, or contributor as there is external resistance. So what, what were some of the resistance that you felt and how did you approach and overcome that resistance? That is a really great question. And I've got to say that it's a great question because there are there's so much to learn when you're doing a venture pivot that's so different than when you're doing a fresh brand new startup, right? So let's talk about internal first. I come in as a brand new CEO and of course I have to hire go-to-market people and marketing people and whatnot. So initially there was an us and them, right? The new regime and the old regime. And that's culture. That's company culture. So how do you create a new cultural experience with a group of individuals who have been with the prior company and with the product for two and a half to three decades. Because the good news for us is our engineering team stayed with us. They're very loyal. They love the product. They love what they've built. Yeah. So we had this sort of this old and new chasm. Yeah. 30 years plus of leadership teaches you the best way to overcome that is to have honest, open communication. Right. So as the CEO, I took it upon myself to ensure, number one, that every employee in the company um, was spoken to by me. So developing a rapport, starting to develop trust, mutual respect from a one-to-one perspective so they would know who I was and what my intent was so they could feel, I can't tell them how to feel, but I would hope that they would understand where we were trying to take the company. That was number one. Number two, having regular all hands calls, right? Getting the team together, the old and the new groups and giving them an opportunity to participate in a monthly all hands call. Yeah, we did that. Kicking off every new year, talking openly about our plans and our results and our fundraising activities to allay any unnecessary angst that they may be feeling. And then candidly, as in every business, there are some people that, you know, you just can't get over, right? You just can't convert them. And so some people opted out. And it's interesting that, you know, as a leader, you have a sense that maybe Joe or Susie or Sally may be causing a problem. You're sensing that, you know, you're not positive. And then Joe or Susie or Sally opt out and suddenly things seem to fall better into place. Yeah. yeah? Addition through subtraction, I think they Addition call it. Addition through subtraction. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how does the economics even work for a legacy company that's trying to and do something new, right? Because like, obviously the company had been around for a long time, you'd been profitable. So you have, you know, a much higher valuation than, you know, a, a startup that has like sort of a blank slate. So when investors are looking at investing in a, in a company, how is, is that conversation different 
when those investors are, are looking at a, Compass, a company like Canvas that is trying to pivot, pivot from their legacy business model? Uh, how does that differ from you know, the conversations that you've had, either as a VC looking to fund you know, a very early stage startup or as someone who's run other startups that have raised capital? Yeah, that's an also an interesting discussion. So what I have found is that companies with legacy that are pivoting to a new market position, perhaps creating a new category, right, which is what we're doing, right, it's very difficult to raise capital. And you might say, but Pat, you have this amazing install base of customers and you've successfully converted them. Yes, we have. We've converted them to the latest version of our legacy product. Okay. We changed the price methodology of the legacy product. So the investors want to see us start gaining traction on our new platform, which we call Envision. Yeah. So even though my revenues are really way ahead of what is typical for a company that's two years old, right? Because we pivoted two years ago, right? They say, well, until the new product really starts showing traction, we're not comfortable that, you know, you can take your legacy customers and actually not only convert them to a new business model, but also put them on the new platform. Yeah. And so what we've done to sort of allay those concerns of the VCs is we went after new acquisition. And so the goal was we had a two-pronged strategy. Let's become intimate with our existing install base. Let's really, really pay attention to the top 100 customers. Let's get them to love us and trust us. Because when you do a perpetual license, You don't have to do as much customer success because they own the product, right? When you're in a SaaS market, you have to renew. So you're managing churn. So you're always, how are you doing, Mr. Customer? How can I help you, Mr. Customer, right? That's how we mitigate churn. But when you're in a legacy business with perpetual model, you, you sell it and you walk away. So we had to go back and develop intimacy. And, you know, our results proved that we did that. So step one was get the existing install base onto the new business model and to the latest version of our legacy product while going after net new customer acquisition with the platform. So we were running a two-pronged strategy and the results that we will be reporting this year, we did 3x growth year over year. So 3x growth, um, you know, COVID, COVID actually was a benefit for us because our product is a collaborative communication product. So like our friends at Zoom and others, the COVID experience with the hybrid workforce and the future of work has actually benefited us. Yeah. So 3x growth year over year revenue. And, you know, if I look at my product mix, my new product on a pie chart is taking um, a, probably about a little more than a third of my revenues and two thirds is my legacy. Our new product has only been in market five months. Oh, wow. Five months. It's taken up a third of our revenue because it's that hot of a product. That's that's great. And I'm sure there's pent up demand for a refreshed, you know, web enabled product for a lot of your clients anyway. I mean, I, I can definitely see some of the really big 
manufacturers, especially like if they're defense contractors, they may, you know, be holdouts for, for longer. But, you know, it seems like everyone prefers web enabled software these days anyway. But I, I'm curious, like, are the types of investors that you're, you would be speaking with? Are they different? Is it more like private equity investors than, you know, than traditional VCs? Or um, have you guys reincorporated the business in a way where like a traditional VC looks at the relaunch product as almost its own company? Yeah, very good question for any company, any company, whether it's a legacy pivot or whether it's brand new in the beginning stages when you're small and you're looking for capital for runway. You go to the same genre of investors. So you're either going for seed money and you're doing the friends and family sort of route initially, or you're doing an early priced round. We will go to traditional VC. Okay. The thing that we have to do is we have to identify the traditional VCs that number one, no manufacturing, because um, our product is very specific to solve a real problem in that vast manufacturing vertical. Yeah. Number two, if they're prescribed, if they have a pattern matching, you know, sort of pres- prescription of what you must do in order to be considered viable by them, we won't go to those guys because that's a waste of our time, right? If we don't right. fit the box, we don't go. And many times the box precludes legacy. Okay. Now, when you get to a certain magic ARR, annual recurring revenue, and sometimes it's 3 million, sometimes it's 5 million, sometimes it's 8 million in annual recurring revenue, that's when the new growth equity guys take an interest. And so PE, as we've known it historically, you know, they look for positive EBITDA, they look for big uh, revenue numbers, they have... I would say diversified. And now they're looking at being able to invest, I would say an A round, a series A or a series B into businesses like where my business is at, because I've hit some of those thresholds. Yeah. And they want to fund us for hyper growth, bend the curve, right? So if our revenue is going up and to the right, they want to make sure that that the angle of that curve is more straight up. Yeah. So that growth equity group is one we're targeting right now. Okay. When you first started with Canvas, you know, obviously there was, there was sort of establishing or reestablishing, you know, the culture going forward, you know, kind of making sure the team you, you had were people that wanted to be there. You know, I imagine you had to bring on some additional technical resources that had specialized skills in, in, in these areas. But how did you approach defining, establishing the culture? And then what were sort of the benchmarks that you used to d- define success while the team was building out that new product? Yeah. So for me, right, I have always been a leader that believes in respect for the individual. Right. So ensuring that everybody in the organization had a voice and that their voices could be heard. Right. Allowing them time to voice their thoughts, their opinions, their ideas, respecting 
the cultural differences, our company has 23 employees and we represent 13 countries. So we are an incredibly diverse organization. I love that because I believe that that level of diversity teaches us not only about how to work across cultural differences, but a lot about ourselves. And I think that's important. That should be part of our work routine is to learn not only about business and how to work in teams, but how can we better ourselves as individuals? Yeah. So the cultural change, the cultural growth, I measured that primarily in retention and ability to achieve the goals set forth. Yeah. Here's what you find out. If you got a group of people that are happy, happy is a funny word, content, satisfied in their role, and they're fighting the same fight to cross that goal line and achieve, you know, the, the general availability data in the product or the revenue number or the whatever it may be that they're accountable for. You're going to find that you've got a good organization if you're meeting your objectives across every functional unit. And indeed we have. In fact, we've exceeded it. Yeah. And so another part of measuring that is this retention. So being able to go back and acknowledge the work, right? Don't forget to say thank you. Don't forget to say thank you to every single individual in the company and also to every customer that you have, right? Take that time out. Make sure you appreciate all that you have been able to do because of the people that support you and the customers that pay you, right? Now, the great resignation has been tough, okay? And we have lost a couple people, but the exit interviews weren't anything about a dissatisfaction with Canvas. It was the workforce is so fragile right now, fragile, <laughs> right? And, you know, companies are paying 2x, 3x what they would normally pay because there's a lot of resignation and they're trying to backfill and get people in. And so a couple people, younger, younger millennials that, hey, they were offered a heck of a good salary at a more mature company. And, you know, they didn't leave because they didn't want to be with us. They left because they're young and they wanted to make three X the salary. I can't do that. I don't care how good your culture is. Right. So, yes, sum it up. I mean, I measure it on results. Right. And it's always about communication, appreciation, respect for the individuals yields those results, which yields that your culture is working. What have you enjoyed most about this this experience with Canvas so far? <laughs> what have I enjoyed most? I've enjoyed watching this organization come together and gel. And yeah. it actually almost brings tears to my eyes because it's so heartwarming when, you know, when they're all there and they're all excited and they're, you know, they're so proud of what they've done. You know, it's kind of like being a parent, you know, you're watching your kids grow up and they're growing in the right direction. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. Yeah. So I think that's what I've enjoyed the most. It's a lot of hard work. Right. I said to somebody the other day, I'm coaching a, a company of two female founders and they're actually going through a legacy transition. And I said to them, this is not for sissies, guys. Because you're going to have to deal with so much more than what you would typically deal with if you were starting fresh. Yeah. 
So, you know, my delight is seeing the team win and come together. So we're, we're almost through 2021. Um, so I'm curious, like what, what's, what, you, what are your goals for 2022 for the company? Like what is your, you know, strategic focus? Like what, what are you trying to build, um, you know, for, for 2022? Yeah, so for 2022, our new product is in market. So we want to see transactional acceleration, you know, new customer acquisition. So we have built a plan that we believe is, is doable and viable. I like 3x growth numbers. So, you know, you 3x growth on a small number is easier than 3x growth on a bigger number. But we're targeting 3x growth next year. With a little luck, we may do more than that. Yeah, so growth is clearly an objective for 2022. There's another thing that we really want to do. And this is really sort of a personal mission for me. And that is, I want to raise and awareness through thought leadership that there really is a product communication disorder, right? I don't want to be hokey about it. I don't want to be markety-ish about it. I think that, you know, my goal is to help educate, right, the market at large on there's a new way to think about communicating what you do to your audience at large, yeah? And if you think about it, we're all about visual interactive communication, right? Metaverse is becoming hot, right? And the reason it's hot, it's there's an emotional transit, there's emotional connection, right? We get excited, it makes us happy. We have fun, it's playful, yeah? And I think that in a consumer world, that's interesting, but we have to transcend now to the business world. We have to realize that flat file, screenshots, PDF, they served their purpose. Right. Now we're in a world where we have avatars and we can go into 3D environments and, you know, the technology has evolved. So our, our premises, you know, think about as a business being able to deliver an experience to your customer about what you're building, that interactive being able to look at it the way your brain works and at the pace at which you work. So people say, well, video does that. I would argue video is prescriptive. When I look at a movie, I can't stop the video in the middle and start tearing apart the the fast car or whatever the video is about. With Canvas, our new platform, you're able to have an experience. And I want to educate. So a big thing for me personally is let me get out and talk about this. And let me show the ROI and show the benefit, right? And how you crush your KPIs when you're dealing with interactive, visual way to communicate what you've built, okay? So that's my big thing for next year, creating this new category and helping people nod their heads and say, hey, you know what, guys, that makes sense. Let us get on board. Let us help you, yeah? And for the listeners out there who might be getting excited about, um, you know, the, the the product and the business as you've described it, like what what are some of the types of of resources that you're looking for, and you know, kind of what's your pitch to join Canvas GF, GFX? <laughs> well, we're always looking for great engineers, right? We're always looking what, for what great kind of engineers? full stack web developers, 
right? So people that know Angular, people that know React, people that understand the cloud, security, collaborative software, communication software, customer dashboarding, UI, UX, right? Because it's all about, even though we do this interactive, you want the workflow to be super simple and slick, yeah? So those kinds of people that have that kind of thought process, we like that we're always looking for those kinds of people, people that want to sell something new that's wicked cool, okay? I mean, this is fun. It's fun to demo. You look at it, you're like, wow. We always get this aha moment when we demo. They go, oh my gosh, like that is amazing, yeah? So what's our pitch? Our pitch is if you want to make a difference, right? If you want to really wake up a year from now and say, I did that, we're the company for you. Yeah, I believe in uh, equity ownership for every employee. So, of course, we provide stock options as part of our salary package. I think that when people feel a piece of it, a part of it through equity, it makes a little bit of a difference. The millennials, and it's not a criticism, it's that, you know, they're young yet. But what they need to understand is where our stock options are priced right now versus where I expected this company to, to exit they can make a lot of money, right? <laughs> right? Um, and, and you yeah. guys are based in Boston, but do you hire all over or do you want the team in, in Boston? We are based in Boston. We have engineers and other folks in Canada. So we have a nice cohort of employees in the Toronto and Vancouver area. We also have people in California, Illinois, Georgia, Florida. So like most companies, the future of work dictates that we're in a hybrid world and using a product where you can interact visually makes it a heck of a lot easier to have remote employees than if you're just emailing flat files around. So we, we walk the talk, if you will. Right. Excellent. So if you're an Angular React developer out there and this or, or you know, someone who's interested in, in business development or product, it sounds like uh, Canvas has openings in, in all of those areas. So definitely check out Canvas at canvasgfx.com. Uh, Patricia, it's been great to have you today. Any, any final words? No, I just thank you very much, Brian. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with our audience. So yeah, thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll do like a update maybe next year, just to check in to you know, see how things are coming along and um, you know how, what you accomplished in the, the, the past year, a year from now. That'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much and happy holidays to you and everyone. Yeah, thanks so much, Patricia. Thank you. Um,